This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Welcome back. I'm Matt Considine. In our last season of The Bag Drop, we uncovered the untold stories from the PGA pros, superintendents, architects, and operators who make it possible for us to play the game we all love. To kick off our new season, we turn the mic to our members and ambassadors to show you how the community itself might be the best part of golf. So how's your uh, essential walks going? So you and I typically are only a couple blocks away, and I feel like we're on a hot trail of each other walking around oh, yeah. the neighborhood because, you know, we're taking pictures of the same houses that are putting up balloons and trying to spread some joy. Uh, right. is that, is that a daily ritual for you is to get outside and walk around the block? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of easy now, I think, especially working from home where, you know, the hours can just fly by sometimes and you realize that you haven't gotten out. It's, you know, two in the afternoon, <laughs> you, say, well, you know, I, I, uh, you know, you look down at your watch and it says you've, you've, uh, you've made like 800 steps all day, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's been a, it's been a routine. It's been a ritual. Um, I tried to switch it up, but walking around our neighborhood is, is often, um, it's just really nice because the, there's small streets, those old houses in old town triangle, um, are always fascinating to me. And, and yeah, like all these displays in people's windows. Um, yeah, they're really uplifting. So it's, it's, we're, we're bound to run into each other at some point. I, we have to, I mean, that, it's always like a block away, I think, but we haven't seen each other in two months. So <laughs> I was going to, you know, I've always been a fan of the old town neighborhood uh, triangle area in Chicago ever since I moved here. And I've always been drawn to, to wanting to live in it. Uh, so I'm on the border of it. I can't even say I'm like actually in the old town triangle, but me and my wife just love walking the dog around. And as someone who's an architecture, uh, aficionado or appreciator as you are, um, what is it actually about these homes that are so different in, in this, uh, this area? Well, I mean, first off, I have to say I, I know very little actually about about architecture. I'm just, yeah, I'm an appreciator. Uh, I have no background in it whatsoever. I I know three architectural terms total, and I can't even quote them to you right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I mean, I would say, yeah, just kind of being an amateur uh, appreciator and um it, I think that neighborhood has a particular piece of Chicago history to it that makes it interesting, and that's borne out in a lot of its architecture. The Chicago Fire uh, in the late 1800s um, burned up everything south of uh, what's now North Avenue, basically. And right around, um, right around that area a lot of the homes north of North Avenue, so North, Old Town Triangle, ended up being preserved. Um, so you get a lot of those really old buildings dating back to the 1860s and 70s, all that brickwork, and, and still a lot of homes that are made almost entirely out of, out of wood. Um, that adds 
so much character to, to the neighborhood and it's it's not something you typically see around Chicago where you know north of Old Town Triangle was largely undeveloped as well I mean what we know um of like you know where Wrigley Field is uh, I mean there were there were homes there but there was also a lot of wide open space and undeveloped area as well so there wasn't a lot of architecture a lot of buildings that date back to that time anyway so you have that kind of unique mix of a developed neighborhood that was also saved from the the tragedy of the chicago fire so you, you say you don't know anything about architecture then you go on and educate us on on plenty about architecture uh well, i just look at buildings and i and i can figure out if i if I think it's pretty or not, that's about that's about it. I can't tell you about, you know, there, the, the joint work or you know the buttresses or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> there, there is something about being old, though, too. I think I, I've noticed that with myself, right? Whether it's uh, appreciating, you know, an old blade uh, in someone's bag or the eight eighty two putter that you know comes up in, occasionally in a society golf bag or. Uh, just old golf courses. There's just something about when things get old, they're interesting. Yeah, and I I don't know where I first heard it, but I, I remember this phrase a lot that you can't manufacture old, you can't create old. Um, whether it's like the patina, you know, of, of something that's been weather worn, um, or just the the look and feel of something. Um, you know, there's something very real about it and, and uh, lacking artifice. So I think a, a lot of us are drawn to that, especially in times now where everything seems a little bit like over-manufactured. And um, just, you know, it's, it's hard to create an atmosphere through design. Um, but seemingly a lot of things that have stood the test of time have stood the test of time because it it has that feel to it, that character to it. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery as to like how that's created or how it survives. But but when it when it does survive, you just kind of you kind of know it. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into your love of golf because that's obviously what we talk about on the bag drop is how we all share that in common. Um, but first, I want to talk about your love of writing. And, oh, sure. and uh, where, where did that start for you? It started in high school. Uh, I think a lot of people end up finding uh, their, their passion at, at some point in high school. You, you try on different things. Um, you're exposed to so many different things uh, in, in school and outside of it uh, in those years. And I was lucky. Um, I mean, I remember going off to college and, and kind of knowing exactly what I wanted to major in and what I wanted to, to become in life. Uh, and that's, I think that's really rare. Um, to some extent, that put some blinders on me, you know, that I wasn't still, um, the fact that I wasn't figuring that out anymore maybe closed me off to some other um, possibilities. But Definitely no regrets. Um, to get back to your question, uh, in high school, I was much better at math and science, but uh, I kind of lacked some sort of passion for it. Um, 
and I didn't see like what I would end up doing with math and science. And I didn't want to do anything with math and science in terms of a career. Uh, and you know, I, I came across uh, a very rare and exceptional English teacher, uh, by the name of Jim Langless. Um, and, uh, my love of literature and my love of golf, I can attribute, uh, in many ways, um, to him, you know, he was a golfer, he was a poet, uh, he was an exceptional teacher. Um, he knew how to make connections to all different kinds of students, which is a very, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do as a teacher. Um, but the way that he approached literature just clicked for me. Um, instead of there being always a right and a wrong answer, uh, like there is in math, uh, I learned that literature is in sort of a area in which you have to get comfortable with the fact that there are no right or wrong answers or interpretations. And I think that mirrors life in many ways that you kind of realize that as you, as you learn about personal relationships, um, you learn about family and just everything that happens to you in life, it's, it's all gray areas. And you have to find a way of making meaning for yourself and in your life. And I think that, you know, novels, I think that poems, those, those are attempts at trying to figure out what matters most in life. And so, yeah, I took, I, I took on to it and uh, in some ways just haven't really even turned back. You said that writing, you, you knew that that's what you wanted to do. And I, I would agree that's very rare. <laughs> uh, I probably changed my mind 16 times between my senior year and my freshman year of college of what I actually wanted to do. But um, you said it might close some possibilities for you. What, what do you think those were? I think it's easy to always look back and, and again, I don't have any regrets, but, um, I am someone who reflects a lot, maybe, maybe too much sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny thinking about architecture. Uh, I think at some point in high school, I had an idea that I might want to be an architect, um, you know, before, kind of discovering literature and, and, and you know, interpreting uh, poetry and everything. And we're having a, con a conversation with a, a really, really smart friend of mine. Uh, and he said, oh, architecture, there's, by the time like we're out of college, there's gonna be no such thing as architects anymore. It's just gonna be all designed by robots or something like that. I don't know what his explanation was. <laughs> But he was so smart about these things. He ended up becoming like a you know an engineer who's worked for IBM and Google and all these like amazing companies. And I just I just what he was so convincing, whatever it was. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And it just turned totally turned me off to the idea of like pursuing you know architecture. But um, again, I now that I know a little bit more about what architects do. Um, and what they don't do, um, I certainly don't regret it. I mean, there's just there's a lot of engineering know-how, and I think architects spend a lot more of their time 
trying to figure out, you know, plumbing of a, of a building than they are, you know, sketching and, and dreaming up interesting angles of the exterior, which is something that I would have been more drawn to the, the sort of art of it and not so much the, the engineering of it. What's the, I think it's Fazio's quote or something. Architecture is 80% drainage. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to the layperson from the outside, you know, you look at someone's career and you kind of imagine it being a lot more interesting and a lot more romantic than it ends up being. I think that's true of a lot of jobs. Absolutely. I, I think it's funny though, that you, and we'll get to so much to talk about Jim, but you know, your clubhouse account and how you do, you know, talk about architecture. And to hear that answer, I, I was kind of joking around. I knew you were an appreciator of architecture. I didn't realize that it was almost a potential path for you. But I think what's interesting about it and how, what mo most people can relate to is, you know, when I was growing up, it was uh, be a pro golfer. And then when that wasn't a reality, it was like, well, maybe be a, uh, a PGA pro. These guys help people play golf. They're around golf. You know, they're all these things. My path went a very different direction. And you look at where it comes back around to, and it was the thing I dreamt about when I was a kid. And I wasn't even doing it for, for work. I was just doing it as a hobby in, in the beginning. Um, and you're very similar, right? It's like, if you liked it as a kid, it doesn't necessarily go away. Yeah, you don't work as a full-time architect, but you can certainly make it a part of your life to admire and appreciate it. Oh, yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I heeded a lot of people's advice to do what you love, you know, make what you love um, what you do every day. Uh, and I think that's great advice. Um, I think one thing that I've learned um, down the road, and, and tell me how this sounds for you and your experience as well, but um, when you turn what you love into your job, it also changes a little bit of your relationship to, to what you love. You know, um, it becomes a little bit more of a, of a grind. And there's, um, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it does change a little bit of your, um, your approach to, to that passion. You know, it, it, it does become part of a, a, a nine to five and a little bit of a paycheck. And, and then, you know, since it's no longer now just a pure hobby, you haven't kept it yet. That purity is, is, is gone a little bit for you. So there's something to be said for sure about, doing what you love. And then there's something to be said for keeping it just a pure hobby as well. You're, you're preaching the choir. I, I call it, uh, almost protecting that, that love of it. Um, because if you're working on the thing that you are passionate about, it's going to hold your attention better. So you're going to be able to push through that grind. At least if I'm hearing you right, I think you can, you can do that, but it's not going to remove the grind and you have to, to remember that. Yeah. Part of, my work is to make sure I do these things around this thing that I love, but I got to also do the things that made me fall in love in the first place. And so I'm constantly, exactly. I'm constantly reminding myself to go back and do it. And as it relates to golf, you know, I think anybody who works in the golf industry, which many people that listen to the podcast do, um, they know that way too well. That they just kind of yeah. lose, that, lose that love because it becomes just that at eight to five or that eight to nine. Right, right. And, you know, in my day job, I work as an editor, uh, I work for a, a literary nonprofit. And um, 
the nonprofit um, is concerned with poetry and promoting the art of poetry. Um, it's a very simple and, and pure mission, and it's very broad. And it's, um, I mean, it's a joy to be able to work in that sort of context. I mean, there's very few places in the world or, or organizations in the world that do this kind of work where you could actually earn a living and um, pursuing this um, passion of, of mine in a, in a pretty pure way. But, you know, I, th- I don't know what people imagine I do all the time, but <laughs> I, I, well, I imagine it's something like, you know, they think I'm just sitting around reading poetry all day and, and just pondering life's, you know, quandaries. But, but I'm, in, I'm in spreadsheets all day. You know, I'm I'm I am a project manager. I'm a I'm a budget guy. Um, I'm I'm you know in a content management system. I'm line editing. It's it's not as romantic as it might seem on paper, you know. But but what I'm really fortunate um, it, about is that I mean I love that work as well. I'm a I'm a very analytical person actually, and and probably less creative of a person than, than people assume when they know I work in poetry. Um, and that works well for me, that combination of um, being analytical about a creative thing, um, being concrete about an art form. Um, it has been a really nice mixture. And I realize when I've spent an entire day in um, spreadsheets that what is underlying that work is, is poetry, is art. Um, is something that I find really redeeming and and assuring. Thanks for squashing my romantic ideal of what I thought you did. Uh, and, and <laughs> you know, I, I thought you were just hanging out with the spirits of Robert Frost and Dickinson, and you're just uh, you know channeling um, what they have to offer. But no, spreadsheets, just like the rest of us, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, work ends up being work on the other side. Um, and yeah, yeah, I can't claim to, to convene with any, uh, any ghosts whatsoever, uh, <laughs> probably for the best. Uh, you also worked as a English professor, or are you currently working as an English professor? What, what do you do there? Yeah, uh, I, I adjunct. So uh, I got a PhD at Boston University in the late 2000s moved to Chicago for this job, the day job. And uh, I knew at that point, at the end of grad school, that I didn't want to be a full-time teacher. Um, I just didn't think I had it in me. Um, Getting tenure is a really, really difficult thing. Um, And I also didn't want to teach five classes a semester, have 180 students, not know their names, and just be constantly stuck underneath a pile of papers to grade. Uh, I love teaching. I hate grading. Um, I want to be in the classroom. I want to make a connection with all my students. I want to get to know them. Um, I want to get them passionate um, about what I'm teaching. I want to instill the, the things I'm charged with teaching. Um, but uh, what I've found is a really nice balance is that I, I adjunct at Loyola University. So in Chicago, uh, once or twice a year, I, I teach a class uh, in the English department. Uh, that class will change semester to semester, but um, it allows me to keep one foot in that world or one toe 
in that world. And uh, I, I, I never have more students than, than I can remember. You know, I know all their names. Uh, I know what they're majoring in. I know what their interests are. Um, and I love having that connection. It's the thing that got me into literature in the first place. Um, and trying to kind of emulate, you know, some of the great teachers that I, that I had growing up and, and in high school and college. Um, I'm just trying to kind of pass it along. Uh, yeah. So uh, let's go through your, your education path here. Uh, Wheaton, right? You went to school out in Wheaton, high school. Yep. Then yep. off to Dartmouth, Harvard, BU, and now teaching as an English professor at Loyola. Uh, I know one of those schools. I, I don't know the first couple there, but um, most curious in your, uh, your golf game throughout those days. When did you play your most golf, and when were you playing your best golf? Oh, wow. It's hard to say. I mean, best golf, again, how do you measure yourself against other golfers <laughs> is, the, is the big question. Um, I started Bye-bye. playing when I was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I started playing golf around 12 or 13. I used to watch it on TV a lot, uh, with my dad, with my stepdad. And I just knew that I was really interested in trying it out. Uh, both of them were golfers. And so I was introduced to the game, um, by both my dad and stepdad. Um, I got more serious about it around the age of 14 so beginning of high school, um, kind of struggled my freshman year. I then tried out for the varsity team my sophomore year and just thinking, why not? Why not give it a shot? Um, ended up playing really well in the qualifying and ended up making the varsity team my sophomore year. Um, and I never knew that that was going to be possible. So um, I was able to play um, through high school. Um, I kind of measure my high school career by, um, the, pe- the people I played with and what they went on to do. Um, I went to the competing high school of Kevin Streelman and, uh, I like to say I had the pleasure of getting my ass kicked by Kevin Streelman more times than I could count. <laughs> um, except for one or two times when he was going through a swing change our senior years in, in high school. I think I got him once or twice, you know, in our nine hole competitions, but the fact he was going through a a complete radical swing change, getting ready to play golf at Duke. Um, I still count it as a win, you know, but, but he was totally handicapped. You were the wind, Uh, the wind beneath his wings. You lifted him up, you know, you let you lurking in the background, letting him know that he's got to stay sharp, stay sharp, Kevin. Exactly. So, I ended up playing golf in college. I uh, played on the, the, the golf team at Dartmouth. Um, I joke that in order to play college golf, I, I had to find a school that not only didn't offer athletic scholarships, um, but I had to go way up into New Hampshire where you could play golf for about four months out of the year. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're serious about a, a college sport, if you have that talent and it, it's an outdoor sport like golf or tennis, I mean, you want to play south of, you know, Kentucky. You want to play where you can play year-round, right? Um, And me and my teammates were hitting golf balls into a net, you know, in a basement for about 
four months in winter. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to be competitive as a team um, when you're doing that. But we actually had some really talented people on our team and, and we always, we always did well, you know, respected in, in, in new England, at least um, when we would play, you know, like you guys uh, in Ohio and some of the mid Atlantic teams, we just, we, we were quickly reminded how different it is competing in uh, new England compared to the more Southern States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely uh I think that that college golf experience, I don't know how much of it exists anymore, Jim. I've, th- I've talked to younger guys oh, that are yeah. in college. Like now they all have the indoor track man and the facilities that they get to or they partner with if the university doesn't have one. Yeah, I, I, I had only one year myself of hitting blind for six months into a net 10 feet in front of me and just thinking, I guess that was a fade. I, I don't <laughs> really know. <laughs> Those are the, those are either the good old days or the or the dark ages. I can't quite figure out which one is which. You know, I, but yeah, I mean, no technology whatsoever. I think it was the day of the the time of the poet, right? I, I what you were saying earlier actually um, reminded me of what Bamberger shared a quote from his book. Michael Bamberger was on our our book club call last week, and um, I won't remember it exactly, but I think he said, you know, all golfers are either poets or engineers and uh, an engineer is more reliable but a poet has more fun and, and I think I know you have this analytical side to you but um, from playing golf with you and uh, in talking with you I feel like we're both probably more on the poet side of it yeah I'd say so I mean it, again it depends on what you mean by poets you know um, and what you mean by engineers I think uh they probably both have a little bit more of each other in them in order to, to, to be good at what they do. You know, I think poets have to be a little bit analytical, um, but are largely creative. And I think, you know, same thing with engineers. I think engineers have to find creative solutions all the time. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, kind of using a poet as a stand in for someone who would never be analytical. And I, I think I, I am more interested in golf, um, that is more that, you know, kind of puts those things away for four hours. Um, that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to commune with nature. That's certainly what people think of when they think of poets. Um, I'm trying to get out of my head a lot when I'm on the golf course. Um, I approach golf as my form of meditation. Um, I'm someone who I, I, I can't sit on a mat and, and meditate. It, it, that's too much. My, my mind is already going too much. I can't really quiet it. So, you know, as Dr. Joe Parent says, you know, you don't want to stop your mind. You just want to find a way of letting thoughts pass through it more freely rather than getting stuck on them. And I think golf has been a really good outlet for me in that way um, because it kind of lets me go with the flow a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's almost a, a bit of that focus, right? Like when you have um, both your body and your mind trying to focus on the same thing, uh, I, I find it easier. I don't know if you feel this, tell me if you feel the same way, but I find it easier to find that calm, to find that uh, that mindfulness you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I, I think a lot about mechanics when I'm when I'm playing, um, 
you know, I'm always trying to fix something and I have no idea what my swing is going to do until I get to the first tee, you know, even with practicing. And I mean, that's part of the fun of it too. Um, realizing that your game's never going to be great or perfect. It could always be better, but just kind of learning to accept what you have, what you have that day and just kind of working with it. Um, but I, I mean, my, my favorite experiences on golf courses are, have nothing to do with necessarily like how I shot, you know, I mean, I almost never keep score now. Um, or even, you know, how many times I hit the fairway and, and how many greens I hit or, or any of those things. It's, it's either who you're with or, or where you are. And, and, you know, the, the escape that you had for that day. Yeah. You, you and I, I remember having a conversation about, um, competition and golf. And I recall you have a very perhaps complicated relationship with competitive golf. Uh, where do you currently stand with that? I mean, obviously I, I hear what you're saying about not keeping score, but, um, are you pro having a match? Are you, uh, more just, Hey, that's, that's enjoy the next four hours out in nature. Like what, wh- where do you stand on competition in the game? You know, it, I'm pretty much anti-competition at this point. And this is just my own take. And this is just, this is just for me, but you know, my favorite game to play on the golf course is golf. You know, um, I like making swings. I like hitting the ball. I like getting it in the hole. And, um, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm not up for a friendly game here and there. Um, I love playing for, you know, honor, you know, as opposed to $20, this and that, and, and presses and switching of, I, I, I can't keep up with any of that stuff. I'm not a big gambler to begin with. Um, but for me, like competition ends up being a way of just setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, I think no matter how good you play for someone with an analytical mind, like mine, I always think like I could have done better. You know, if I shoot 82, you know, that could have been a 79 and I just fixate on the mistakes I made, um, in competition, um, the putts I missed rather than focusing on the good things, the more positive things. So when I'm playing and I'm not competing, I find that it's, it's easier for me to remember the good things, um, than to fixate on the bad, um, and of course, you know, I mean, some people need some action, you know, to make the game more compelling, more interesting. And that that's fine, of course. I mean, for me, um, it, you know, it just takes a little bit away from the pure experience of the game. But with that said, one of my favorite golf memories of the past year involves uh, one of the best comebacks I've ever seen on a golf course uh, by you. And your uh, partner Alex War at Tobacco Road. I, I, you knew where I was going next because <laughs> I knew it. And and I wasn't. I'm glad you brought it up because it was really uh, remarkable. I think it's one of the same with exact th- same thing, Jim. Is like it's a great memory of this past year of, of maybe golf ever um, that we had this epic match at such a special place with great people. And, and so I was going to ask you about, um, 
about that because for me, I feel that sometimes uh, a match, I totally agree. And, and I think our members, frankly, are across the board on this discussion. Are, are, we have some of the most competitive people you will ever meet who, who like to play for money, who always want to have you know, as many points and presses and, and everything on the line as they can. And on the far other side, we have people that have never kept score and probably will never keep score. And, and it is so cool to me that people can play together um, it's still, even having that disparity. But, but what I, for, from my standpoint is when we have a great match like like what you're referring to at Tobacco Road, my uh, playback, my memories become so much more vivid. And I can tell you where the pins were on every single hole of that day. I can tell you which way my putts broke on every single putt of that day. And I've noticed with myself, if I go out and I don't have an overarching match to, to hold that attention, I miss a lot of that stuff. And I'm not saying that, that it's good or bad. I, I just, I'm curious, uh, what, what do you think <laughs> that has to do with? Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I mean, I just remember from that day, um, and I was teamed up, I should say, with the club pro at Tobacco Road. So I had no excuse in terms of, um, and partners. one of the coolest guys in golf, like oh. I, I, everyone says, you know, Eric Anders Lang, coolest guy in golf. They haven't met Chris Brown. Yeah. I mean, not that Chris Brown, not, not, not the Chris Brown. Everyone else is thinking of the Chris <laughs> Brown, the director of golf at tobacco road is one of the coolest dudes I've had the pleasure of playing golf with. Uh, yeah. And having him show us around the, the property was, was extra special as well. I mean, when I talk to people about that golf course and how it could be a really polarizing design, right? You know, it's, it's extremely quirky and strange and, you know, a, a golf course unlike any you've ever seen. Um, you know, what matters a lot is, you know, the kind of mood you're in when you get there, the, you know, how well you play when you get there and, and, and how you know, you know, whether you know where to go and what to do. And he was telling us what to do on every tee. And we just, I mean, we had a great vibe, like the four of us. We had a great, you know, um, match that um, I thought was basically finished around the 13th hole, I think, when we went five up with five to play. And what was a beautiful thing about it was that, you know, I felt like Chris and I didn't lose that match at all. Just that you and Alex just started making birdie on birdie on birdie. (laughs) And we were just parring. And, and and losing holes. So, I, I mean, I I remember that final stretch better than almost anything else. You know, that par five we've made, was it two eagles and two birdies or something? That's right, yeah. I think those matches end up being more rare than, um, than common. Um, but there's nothing, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great story. Um, it's a great novel with a great ending is, you know, is what it is. Um, but life isn't always like that. And matches aren't like that. I mean, most of them are pretty forgettable, um, you know, three and two matches. Um, so for me, it was just a combination of everything, you know, just being on a new course, just an extraordinary layout that, uh, you know, again, you, you haven't 
anything like Tobacco Road if he hadn't played it. Uh, we had an amazing host. We had we were all playing really well, um, and and none of us lost the match. You know, we we halved it on eighteen. We all left uh, Matt Considine in the middle of the fairway. What, what was it? One twenty-five that you had. You, you said you remembered it so vividly. I do. It was uh, one twenty-five on the nose with a hair of a breeze over my right shoulder. Yeah, and we and you you told Alex to take the cart up, leave you alone with your wedge and your putter. You took about two minutes over that ball. You were just you were you were visualizing. We could kind of tell that you were in this zone, and there's all this pressure. We're all standing up like pretty near the green. Three of us us have our phones out, like recording this. We're going to put it on Instagram, <laughs> and you know you have to knock it close to make birdie to you know to win the hole to have the match. A uh, lot of pressure on you, and you stuck it to like two feet. It was unbelievable. It, the zone is the word, and and I wasn't there alone, which was also made the day unique. Um, my partner Alex War, the Warbird, had got it got it started, and. Um, I think for folks that have had those rounds, you know, and been a part of them, it's so hard to, to rekindle that, that zone. And, um, it, it's just a, a state of, uh, everything's in sync and, and things kind of slow down and you're, you're able to appreciate the, the beautiful day and nature, but you're also like hyper-focused in a weird way. And, um, I think matches, do a great job of bringing that out in people. I think I, that's one of the things that I love about match play and why I, we, we insist on it so much at New Club. But um, what I'll remember most about that day, though, is sure the uh, eagle birdie, 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 birdie finish to have the match that's memorable. Um, but it was, the, it was the laughter on 18 and how the four oh, of yeah. us were, were high-fiving and hugging. I mean, you guys were probably four or five under on 13. Um, and we weren't losing the match then, you know, you guys were just winning it and, and for a finish like that to happen, yes, it makes it it more memorable than, you know, when somebody loses the match, somebody wins it, but it was a have, it was a tie and it's just one of my all time favorite days, Jim. And you, it's so cool to share that together. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, you know, competition made it that way, you know, like the fact that there was pressure and you guys were rising, you know, to, to the moment, um, I mean, that was a special thing to witness. And I mean, that's something that I really appreciate in golf as well is watching other people excel. You know, I think sometimes people can get too much into their own game in their own head. Um, you know, I, I mean, I learned a lot of great things from, from both my dad and stepdad. And one of them was, you know, the need to kind of detach your um experience of the game from your results you know if you're be if you're going to be hung up on you know how how you played each day um you might be going out there and paying good money to have a bad time um and and what's the point of that um always you know i always just try to have the best day ever on a golf course you know it's it's you know you're fortunate to be playing any time that you play um and you know to keep your eyes out for what else is happening you know to really honor like that person in your foursome that's that's just having an exceptional day and it's always it's always different you know i I was playing with some new club guys down in san antonio and 
I have no idea what I was shooting each round, but we were with a guy who's kind of come back to the game a little bit um, after taking, you know, some years off and um, he made his first par. Um, and we absolutely love that, you know, and Alex was there as well. I mean, Alex went on a birdie tear and everything. And, but like what I think was really stood out from that trip, you know, was watching Eddie, um, just make some exceptional swings. You know, I, I can't remember the, the, you know, the bad shots that he had, but you know, just the good ones and, and how fun it made, it made the whole trip to watch him, you know, make visual progress throughout the round. I, I'm, I'm loving this conversation just cause it's got me thinking a lot about how everyone enjoys the game. And I think it's not the win or lose piece. Like the, the competition elements, you know, just making a good swing, like you just said, or, or first par, there's all these little achievements you can make. And I think what we're all just looking for is sure. You're going to be, a bit more satisfied with yourself if you win a match or you shoot your best score or whatever. But it's really just w- what you're saying is being in the game. We all just want to be mm-hmm. a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, makes and you, it makes you feel a part of it when these things happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, convening with other people and just having, having a sense that you're sharing an experience together, um, whether you're friends, whether you've, just met up on the first tee and you know you you were you were strangers three hours ago and now you know a lot about the lives of of someone you just met um i i think just being open to those experiences in life is something that golf can can teach us and and remind us of well let's go for from uh life in in the golf world to life on in the golf internet um and the accounts that you run. Uh, hopefully I'm not disclosing this because you're kind of like the faceless man on, on Instagram. People always slowly find out that you're running these awesome, uh, very niche golf, uh, golf hashtags and golf accounts. Um, but let's talk a little bit about uh, golf club houses and golf junk drawer uh, at both on Instagram if you want to follow with Jim's work. Um, you, what what have you learned from running these accounts? I mean, give us give us the kind of the start, yeah. the, how they started and and the experience. And this has got to be like one of the nerdiest things about me. But I, I mean, I I just love it. I I felt like I was the last person to get on Instagram, but now this is about five years ago, um, and I never really before then understood the point. But then once I joined, I I, I immediately got it. Um, you know, I wanted to be a part of the golf community um, on social media, and I knew that I never wanted to be like a personality-driven kind of person, kind of account. Like, I think Eric Anders Lang is is great, um, and I think he's great for the game, but I I don't want to be in front of the camera. Um, it's, again, I'm just a total introvert. You know, I just like putting other things out there to get, to get attention, um, paid to the things that I, I care about. And so, um, there's just a really interesting community of, 
people who love golf, people with shared interests on Instagram. And it's a great way to meet like-minded people. Um, I've had interesting conversations with people all over the world um, through Instagram. And I've uh, met and, and made a lot of new friends through those accounts. Um, it Any got of those started, stories come, come to mind? I mean, I think just in general, you, you realize that you have something in common with someone that you haven't met. And, um, and then, you know, when you realize that you're, you're traveling somewhere, you're, you know, you're going down to South Carolina or even to Australia, um, you realize that you've already had a conversation with a couple people who live in those areas. And you say, you know, why don't we, why don't we meet up? You know, whether it's for a beer or for a round of golf, um, and it's it's a good way of just reminding yourself that, um, you know, we're we're closer than we think we are. You know, I think sometimes, you know, especially now, it's it's easy to to feel very isolated um, from people and and from experiences, um, or to just, you know, feel like you already have enough friends um, that you're in your thirties or forties and you're, you're kind of done making friends, but, but you should never be done making new friends. And I think one of those ways of making new friends is, is through your shared passions, you know, for, for me, it's golf and, and um, you know, the kinds of nerdy things that we end up collecting when we go to golf courses, <laughs> you know, ball markers and tees and, and scored card collections and, um, an interest in golf course architecture. So I wouldn't pinpoint any, any one, um, you know, new, new friendship, but just kind of the, the collective, you know, of, of realizing that um, wherever you end up going and, and wherever you end up playing, you know, there's probably someone that, that, you've, um, that you've come across um, on social media with. And they're both very popular. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I mean, you're into the twenty thousands of followers, or more than that, I'd imagine. Um, I, you know, I don't really look at that too much. I don't really care about it too much. I, I, I've grown um, golf clubhouses just organically. Um, I wanted to contribute something to that kind of golf Instagram world. Um, and I didn't want to duplicate what was already there. Um, I found a, a way to combine um, a love of golf and golf courses and building architecture. And I think um, that's been interesting to me because, again, I'm, I'm using the account to learn a lot. Um, I'm featuring clubhouses many times. I, I haven't been in them myself. An important part for me is that those two accounts are sort of dependent on submissions. Um, it's not just me showcasing all the places I've been or all the go golf courses I've played or anything like that. Instead, it's having people send me their photos uh, of places that they've been, um, places I've never seen before. And then, you know, I just do a little internet research and try to figure out what I can learn about the place. Um, about the clubhouse and just to share that with other people. Um, it's a way of just bringing um, people together. Um, and 
again, I don't know that much about architecture, but it's opened up a new interest of mine. And again, it's, it's hobby level interest, but um, finding a way to, to kind of make that contribution, uh, you know, in a different way um, and, and forging new friendships has been the best part of it. I always admire uh, your account and, and so many others that actually take that step, which I think for a lot of people is a scary step, but making this um, connection online and making it a connection in person. And, you know, I know you've never been afraid to do that, right? Whether it's, you know, you're featuring people that are submitting photos, obviously you're doing, you know, research on these places um, and, and sharing that, but like you, you share it out in person too and, and getting on the road. Um, I know I want to talk to you about, oh, let's just go to it. I, traveling and, and you've, yeah. you know, you, you've got, gone in your car to, to see certain golf courses and you've done it solo. Tell me a little bit about your, your experience. Is there one in particular, very memorable, um, travel experience of you going out there by yourself to, to meet somebody or just, or just play a golf course that, that you think of? Well, for, I mean, first of all, I mean, I really absolutely love travel. Um, it's a tough thing to not be able to do that now, but knowing, you know, in the future, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll get back there and, and, and back traveling. Um, I, I love going on golf junkets, you know, uh, over the past couple of years, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of vacation time from work and, uh, I've been able to put together some trips where either it's sort of combining a buddy's trip with, uh, some alone time, or a work trip that I add a couple of days to either at the beginning or at the end of it to go experience some new golf courses in a different state. Um, I, I just find that so interesting. Like I, I think in 2017, 2018, I think both those years I played over 50 rounds and I didn't play the same course twice. And every course I played was a course I hadn't seen before. Um, and I love that. I mean, you know, again, if you care about score, it, it can be really frustrating because you've, you know, you've never read a, a putt on any of these greens before. You have no idea how, how far the dog leg goes or what, you know, what lurks around the dog leg. But for me, it just, I, you know, I don't care that much about results. I care about discovery. I care about exploring, um, experiencing new courses, um, meeting new people through it. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to go on buddies trips all the time, but, um, I don't think I'm alone, you know, at my age, uh, it's, it's tough to get friends together for golf trips. You know, people are starting families. Um, people don't have that much time away from work, um, that I'm fortunate enough to have. And so it's hard to kind of get your buddies to all, you know, hop on a plane and, and go somewhere for a week. Uh, and play a ton of golf. Um, I'm fortunate to have a friendship that goes back to the 2000s when I was caddying in grad school. Uh, my friend Steve Hamblin and I, we we get together at least once a year, go to an interesting place and play a bunch of new golf courses. We um, compete for this mug that we have etched uh, each year with the with the results of our competition on it. Um, and you know the winner of that year gets to keep the mug. Uh, but but really, I mean, what we're doing, Steve and I, is just trying to come up with a, a, a new place to explore 
uh, new golf courses to experience. And um, for me, I don't know. I, I think traveling alone has some real advantages. Um, again, it's it makes it really special to share trips with um, people you you love, people that you um, want to be around all the time. Um, but there's something special also about being alone and having experiences alone. Um, and I think golf is, is a major part of that. I, you know, golf for me is the only time in my life where I might get paired up with two or three strangers, um, spend four hours with them and, and get to know them and their lives in some sort of depth that I wouldn't otherwise, if I was just playing golf with the same three guys every Saturday morning, um, it makes it special. I think it's a way of connecting with people, um, again, through, through a shared experience, um, a shared activity. Um, and you can choose, you know, how much you share about yourself and how much you learn about other people. But, you know, there's, there's no other, there's no other part of life where you get to spend four hours, you know, with, a, a couple from Sheboygan who, you know, um, he's an electrician and she's a middle school teacher. And, um, you know, they, they collect stuffed animal pigs and, um, you know, they enjoy boating. I mean, it, it, it's so cool. I mean, I think that's one of the best parts of the game is getting to meet new people and, and, and learn, you know, about, you know, their perspectives on things. So it's, it's a good combination, you know, traveling with friends and, and also traveling alone. I, that, that is such a great moment or thing to think about in this moment of you know isolation and I my last two rounds with new club as things are ramping up with you know um, easing of guidelines and everything I was able to play with more people and it was all people that I had not played with before and I thought to myself this is the most human experience I've had in the last 70 days yeah um, and and I think I think that's really powerful right now the way you the way you put it Jim is is so true when you get to play with new people um, and spend time with with new people, and you don't even have to talk. I think a lot of people feel this pressure to engage in conversation and be responsible for that out there. Um, if you're an introvert, I, I feel like I get to know you even if we don't you don't say anything. You know, just watching how you play golf, watching you go through your process, and you know, take your breaths, and um, I, there's there's this weird connection that you get uh, regardless of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, right now it's, it's really good to, you know, find a way to, um, you know, be out with other people. Um, you know, we've, we've had some meetups with friends where we're all at least six feet apart, you know, sitting in a driveway or, or in a park. And those have become really special, um, which, you know, those are the kinds of gatherings that we used to take for take for granted um and now now they're they're the highlight of our weeks um and i think golf can be the same way now that it's kind of opened up in in i think all states now um and that you can get back together and and to do it responsibly um and then you know i mean when i when you get to play alone as well there's something there's something nice to that as well. I mean, you, you can enjoy all that free space yourself. Again, for me, golf is kind of a form of meditation. Um, and I, you know, an opportunity to kind of recenter myself, 
Um, just listening to nature sometimes is great. Um, yeah. And just feeling like you have a lot more room than what you're normally confined in right now, which for a lot of us are, are, you know, one bedroom apartments, you know, in the city. So, (laughs) yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, golf clubhouses account because I would kick myself if I didn't ask you this. Uh, many of the places you feature are hyper-exclusive, right? The clubhouses yeah. that 95 to 99% of the general public, public will never see. Um, do you think there's a deeper, a deeper meaning behind that? Or, or does that, is that part of what contributes to its popularity, you think? Is that you're kind of showing the, un, the unshown? Yeah, I, that's, that's part of what I'm after in, in some respects is, um, inviting people to see what they are in, in real life allowed to see. Um, I think we're all curious, um, what, you know, the inside of some of these clubhouses look like and what the locker room looks like at Cypress Point, for example, or, um, how all the rooms connect in the Augusta National Clubhouse, and it's it, it. These are places I'll 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 never see in in real life. And there's there are people that that have, and there's people that took photos. And um, there's some people who feel safe sharing that with other people. Um, I'll, I you know will share photos that people have sent to me. Um, you know whether they want to have their name credited to them or, or left anonymous. Um, but I think that there's something kind of democratizing about it as well. Um, you know, we see um, on Instagram all the time, you know, these amazing photos of these just, you know, beautiful and very exclusive golf courses. And we all have some FOMO about, you know, not being able to play them. But I think, being able to kind of see the inside of some of these clubhouses makes you feel a little bit about what it would be like to be there. And, and maybe even it's demystifying in a way. Um, maybe all of that, some of that power that those exclusive places have over us because of their exclusivity um, is, is um, lessened a little bit by the fact that we can see what they're, what they're like inside and, and we can imagine what it would be like to be in the locker room or in the bar. Um, and I think that that has like some, some democratizing value to it. I think that that's how I felt being a follower of the account and a, just a, a fellow appreciator now of, of golf clubs and architecture. Um, it's, it demystified. I think that's the word that you said that really uh, clicked with me is that I think at a younger age, I was always trying to check the, the bucket list in a way. And and even if someone asked, even if I had a terrible day, the, the, the time that I got on Oakmont and someone asked, what's your favorite course? I'd say Oakmont. You know, that was my, my because they're going to be like, oh, wow, you played Oakmont, right? And that was the default because uh, I didn't know any better. But then as you get older, I think you you start to be honest with yourself and really evaluate what are the things I enjoy. And part of this account for me is that, you know, most of the pictures you show, it's beautiful and, and, 
fantastic uh, features of architecture with a lot of history and things that you can learn, but it does look like a golf clubhouse that I may have seen before or one that I have been in or a locker room. <laughs> you know, uh, Presswick came to mind with just their dingy old locker room, right? And, and you're like, well, that's that's pretty normal it it appears and and i think you know it it's a more honest i I just like it because it's a it's an honest reflection of hey this is what these these are um we all tend to build them up in our head that the more exclusive of an an experience uh the better it's going to be and in my experience i think you would agree with this is that's not the truth The, the truth is um the place matters um the people matter more and and it's like our our day at um a very public golf course in Tobacco Road. I, I wouldn't replace that for anything. If somebody told me, um, you know, you could, maybe if we could do the same thing at Cypress Point or Pine Valley, yeah, you're probably going to jump at it. But I, I, I don't know. I don't even know. I think I wouldn't replace that day for anything because it's some of the best memories I've had on a golf course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm certainly not someone who's trying to, you know, play all the top 100 and everything. I, I think sometimes if, if you have an experience uh, perspective there where you're, you're trying to, you know, cross off great golf courses, the, the golf course, your experience of it becomes minimized, you know, because you're, it's, you've got a checklist and your focus is on the checklist rather than the experience. And I think, you know, the important thing about golf, um, w- when I started being able to play some of these, you know, great golf courses that, 10 years ago, I thought I'd, I'd never, ever be able to play. Um, you know, you realize that you can have a great experience on any golf course, um, regardless of ratings, regardless of what people have written about them, whether they're considered to be a hidden gem or not, or if they were designed by this person or that person. A, a lot of times it just, it just doesn't matter. You know, it matters what matters is your attitude toward it. Um, you know, expectations have a lot to play with it as well. Um, if you're expecting a lot of a new golf course, you've heard just amazing things, then your bar is so high that for me, I find it hard to have my expectations met or, or exceeded in those cases. A lot of times it's better going in and, and not having such high expectations for a place because then then your expectations would, are, are more, more likely to be met. I mean, it's like, you know, reading a book or watching a movie that has just had so much critical acclaim or all your friends are telling you, you know, you have to see it. You know, you have to, you have to read it. For me, I'm that, for some reason, the way my brain works, I start getting really critical of things. I start looking for things to like nitpick <laughs> yeah. about the book or about the movie and why it shouldn't be so popular or, you know, so highly regarded. Like that's how my brain works. You know, I wish it didn't. Um, but sometimes golf courses can be the same thing. You know, you end up playing a highly rated golf course and you're like, eh, you know, it was, it was fine, you know? And then, you know, you get on um, a golf course that you haven't heard that much about. You're like, this is amazing. This is great. Why, why don't more people talk about this one? Yeah. Um, so it kind of works both ways. That makes me think of a guy that we had on the show, uh, one of our one of my favorites in golf, Mike Harmon. He's the director of golf at Secession Golf Club, and he talked about this very thing with the ratings. 
And they've always been kind of somewhere in between 125 and 175 for since they've since they've opened. And uh, you know, Bruce they have Bruce Devlin as a designer, not not your guy that a lot of people are going to you know list check and, and go see. And he said that is right where we want to be because yeah. it allows me to manage expectations. And I got to say, when people leave this place, they got smiles, and they're saying exactly what you're you're talking about, which is wow. That was unexpected. That was special. And, mm-hmm. and it's got to be so brutally tough for places like Dornock and Royal Port Rush and Pine Valley that are constantly, you know, one through five in the world. I, I would, I'd hate to be that director of golf, <laughs> you know, like oh, having, yeah. to, having to hit people's unrealistic expectations. Yeah, I think, you know, that sort of pressure – it, it's just misplaced, you know, having, you know, wanting to be, you know, your course is 55th right now and you want to get in the top 40 and, you know, golf committees, you know, trying to figure out what they can do to improve their rating. I, I think it's just misplaced. I think it's just, you know, realize what, what makes you different, what makes you special, and then just accentuate that. Um, but you're right. I mean, you go to a place like Secession and you're you're just you know it's a, a really good course um and you but it allows you to focus on the course and the experience in ways that that you wouldn't if um if you had these expectations that you know now now you're trying to figure out if it's worthy of you know being being in some some slot um and i think that's just kind of the wrong the wrong way of looking at things um I think the things can be, you know, a lot of, I, I think they start some interesting conversations, but, you know, you really can't compare courses to each other in any, in any real statistical kind of way that, that makes sense. I mean, they're all apples and oranges. They can, that's right. Yeah. The golf can be pretty darn varied at the end of the day. So you better just, I love your approach of getting out there and seeing new places. Like you mentioned playing 50 courses and maybe one or two you played twice um, or 50 rounds and one or two are at the same place. I think that's so great. And people, the more you do that, like for those that, that haven't you know, taken that leap to go experience more places, um, the more you find out what you really do like and oh, yeah. what and what you want to play more of and it'll make you appreciate. If you play a place that you despise even you know there's some polarizing like what's a polarizing chicago uh rich harvest farms right it's polarizing people the conditions are always immaculate it's one of the hardest places you'll ever play but it's very polarizing and i i what i noticed though is that it at least reinforces to people that play it either maybe it will flip their expectations and what they thought um but if it doesn't you know you play a place like that well then you just reinforce what you do like or or you have a better perspective on it. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to discover what you like, as, as you say, and, and, um, and to embrace it, you know, and, and to not kind of give in to what, you know, prevailing sentiments are about, you know, blind tee shots or centerline bunkers or, I mean, you know, like if you like it, then you like it. Um, you know, you don't need to have critics reinforce your opinions for you. 
I mean, I've learned, I mean, getting able, being able to play a lot of different golf courses has taught me that I love quirk. I love weird stuff, you know, show me a golf hole that I really haven't seen before and haven't played. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I also love templates, you know, I think, I think templates like Seth Rayner and CB McDonald and, and, um, you know, um, Brian Silva are now making, they're so different from one another. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the wrong perspective to kind of think that they're all the same because they have a, a similar shaped green or a, or a different concept of where the bunkers are, um, that are similar, but you know, they're all different because they're on different land. Um, and they have different contours. Um, they play differently in different wind directions. Um, but for me, like if I'm playing a course and there isn't anything unique to it, um, it just doesn't capture my attention. I, you know, once you play a lot of courses and a lot of holes, there, there could be a lot of repetition and, you know, it just ends up feeling like it all blends in. Um, but once you see something like, you know, an inverted bunker um, at Garden City, where you know it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a bunker that that's con uh, I don't know what they, what they it's, it's a it's a big Convex. mound of sand yeah it's a big mound of sand that actually gets raked um, to to resemble a bunker and um, it's a big hill that you have to hit a t- a shot off of um, you, you can both appreciate how rare and unique and interesting that is while you also realize, you know what? I, I realize why most bunkers are actually built into the ground rather than above the ground. This is kind of a hard <laughs> thing. It's a hard thing to maintain, yeah. but I mean, I love, I just love seeing different things. And I, I think that, you know, the, one of the best parts of golf is that, you know, there's no regulation to, um, the playing corridors, right? It's not a 94 foot NBA basketball court where the three point line is in the same place. Um, and you know, in, in golf, it's, it's just entirely different. There's no golf courses. That's, that's exactly the same. So, so why not make it different? Uh, one thing you, you mentioned, and this will be my last golf question for you. Uh, you said you caddied in grad school. So, uh, yeah. Was that your first caddy gig, or did you caddy before that? No, I I caddied a little bit uh, when I was like 12, 13, 14. I think like a lot of us that got into golf, you know, we'd get drop off, dropped off by our moms you know, at, at the uh, the local country club, and um, we'd sit around a long time until we got picked. Um, and then we'd call our moms back up, and they'd pick us up at some point. Yeah. And you learn a lot about caddying, um, at any age. But, uh, when I lived in Boston and I was in grad school, I was looking for a summer job and I happened to live about four miles away from the country club in Brookline. Um, I made a phone call. I, I asked them if they had interest in, in, um, you know, one more caddy and they said, yeah, you know, come check it out. I had no idea what the caddying situation was was like back then. I mean, I, at that point, I kind of assumed that most country clubs had caddies that were in high school for the most part. 
Um, but this was my first experience um, at a club that was paying well enough to have caddies into their 40s and 50s and 60s, basically doing it full time. Um, I think the average age at the country club for caddies was probably late 30s, early 40s. So um, I went to that course thinking I might be really on really too old. In that case, you know, I was, I was one of the younger guys, you know, in my, in my mid twenties. Wow. Um, yeah. That's what I, that that's was what I was curious about being, I, I thought the same thing that being in grad school and going back to be, be a caddy with surrounded by 15 year olds. I, that's what I was curious about. But I, so Brookline has the other side of it. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're all independent contractors. Um, you're sitting around the caddy yard waiting to get called just like you were when you were 12 or 13. Um, you know, there's, there's a pecking order for sure. Um, the first summer I was there, you know, it took a, took a hard time, a, a long time to kind of prove myself and, and my dedication. Um, all the guys that have been caddying there for years, you know, rightly get out before the, the newbies. Um, but once you kind of show that, you know what you're doing and um, that you could be trusted, then, you know, you end up getting more and more loops. Um, you establish some, hopefully some um, relationships with members and then they start asking for you and, and then it kind of takes off from there. Um, I mean, I, I just got so spoiled. I mean, I, I'd be out there every day. Um, you know, the office was, you know, just a, a beautiful golf course, um, getting fresh air, um, in the summer getting, getting paid in cash, uh, nothing, nothing better than that. Um, and getting super spoiled, getting to play that course every Monday, uh, for free. Um, I think that was probably the first, my first experience on, on, on a great golf course. And I think that that opened my eyes up to, you know, how, how important golf course architecture was and in the experience of golf that I kind of took for granted. You say you don't know ghosts, but I got to imagine the ghost of Francis Wilmette would be hanging out at, at, uh, the country club. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, the, the house he grew up in is, is still there and, um, it overlooks the 17th hole, the famous 17th hole, um, where so many things have happened, but, uh, where Francis, we met, um, won the u.s open in 1913 i think yeah yeah so you know when you're caddying and you're caddying for guests of of members you know there's a lot of things that you point out um and there are parts of that history of that course that that people really appreciate so the 17th hole you could point across the street to the to the house where francis we met grew up and you know it's it's always fun to show people the putt that Justin Leonard made in the 1999 Ryder Cup uh, on that green um, and just to kind of share those those small pieces of history um, to be on a course to be fortunate enough to be on a course that has that kind of history uh, is is invigorating you know and then to be able to walk it a lot um, whether you're playing or or, or working uh, it was a real pleasure that's neat that's cool hopefully get there someday well, Jim, uh, I take enough of your morning, my friend. This was awesome. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, hopefully, I'll be seeing you in person for a little golf here in the near future.
been a pleasure and and yeah I, hopefully we can run into each other in around the neighborhood and during our uh, during our walks <laughs> that's right if it's not in the golf course we gotta cross paths in the hood i hope absolutely all right jim take care thanks yep thanks so much